Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Healings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. I'm Daniel Degree, your host. The art market is changing, but you can conquer it. The Clark Healings Fund is hosting an art business conference in the Washington, D.C. metro area, March 23rd through 24th. This life-changing conference includes intensive incubator training designed to optimize the careers of working artists. Blueprint your career with a plan to accelerate it, update your sales strategy and your brand story, and begin building a powerful network to extend and amplify your goals. Visit clarkhealingsfund.org Washington. That's clarkhealingsfund.org Washington. Now, our guest today is Angela Heath. Angela is a speaker, trainer, consultant, and president of TKC, which leads individuals and businesses to leverage the gig economy. With clients like Marriott, the State Department, AARP, and 40 Plus of Greater Washington, she works with older adults, midlife and beyond, helping them adapt to the changing freelance workforce. Angela has appeared in the pages of USA Today, Essence, and local news outlets across the country. She's based in Washington, D.C., and is author of Do the Hustle Without the Hassle. Welcome to the show, Angela. Oh, thank you for having me. Well, it's really great to have you here, especially since you're in D.C. and we have this event coming up in D.C. I want to ask you about D.C., actually. You originally moved there for a graduate internship, but what made you stay? D.C. is such an interesting city. Um, it's a great place when you're, I came here very young, great place for a young professional to get started. And sometimes I say I got stuck here. I know what that feeling is like. The Twilight Zone episode where you drive out of town and it looks like you're entering the same town again. Sometimes we just, you know, we sink our roots without knowing it. Well, let me ask you another question. When did you know that you wanted to work for yourself? I knew fairly early on when I left graduate school, um, my thought was I, my whole life plan, five years in D.C., and that was primarily to party. And then I was moving to Atlanta for another five years to work in the regional office of housing and urban development. That's what it was back then. And after that, I was going to work for myself. I had no idea what that would look like, but that was my life plan when I left graduate school. And we mentioned the fact that you decided to focus on older adults. How did that decision come about? That decision was actually made for me. I got a scholarship in gerontology for graduate school, and who would ever turn down free education? I never would. Well, so one of the things we also mentioned is that you sort of connect older adults with the gig economy or, you know, the new freelance market, if one were to think of it that way, which is kind of changing and evolving uh, as we even talk about it. But I have this question. Don't we all understand the gig economy already, or do you think it needs to be defined more precisely than it has been? I think nobody understands the gig economy. There is so much misinformation and misclassification of what it actually is. And that's one reason why you cannot compare statistics, because everybody has a different definition. Is ride-sharing part of it? Is sharing economy part of it? You know, there's just so many questions about what it is. And so I think we need to actually explore it a little bit more and come to some common language so we can, you know, talk together about it. 
Well, it's kind of funny. I had a couple of guys yesterday jump on a truck I rented and help me move my office, which I'm in the process of moving across town. And what was funny is one of them had a smartphone, and because he had a smartphone, he started talking to me like a member of what I would consider the gig economy and renegotiating the basis for the pricing and everything. And I thought, wow, this guy's smart. And it, it's just really that the culture, even that kind of day labor has evolved uh, by what we've sort of learned from the gig economy. Now, you address mainly, you know, sort of the entrepreneur over 45. And I'm curious about that. How are the challenges faced by younger entrepreneurs different from those of, say, their older counterparts? Well, when you think about millennials and you think about baby boomers, they are in a somewhat similar situation for different reasons. For millennials, uh, many of them are dealing with a lot of college burden debt, and they're coming out of school, far too many of them, and they're not finding good paying jobs. So they have the highest unemployment rate in the nation. The second group with the high unemployment rate is the baby boomers. They are being laid off. Some of it is due to ageism, companies cutting back, offshoring, those sorts things, and they're not finding jobs. So both of them are in the same situation in terms of needing some alternatives to that good job, but for different reasons. Now, when it comes, let's talk about the boomers in particular. Um, there's sort of a cliche that it's all about technical barriers for older adults. I wonder if you think that holds water or if we overemphasize that, hey, really, their biggest need is to understand social media and smartphones and technology. Or aren't there other things that older entrepreneurs struggle with that are more structural, more systemic? Well, when you think about older entrepreneurs, oftentimes, you know, technology changes almost every day. So there are some barriers there. And for some people, there may be some hesitancy to learn so much new technology. But there are other things that are in our favor. We know we've got the experience, we've got the contacts, and in many instances, we have the resources to invest in starting a job. And that's why the most successful business people are actually around 40 to 45. Well, now, are the most of the older entrepreneurs that you help re-entering or just entering the market for the first time with a new idea, or is it sort of legacy companies that need to adapt to new conditions? Well, most of the people that I work with are just entering into the world of um, entrepreneurship, and they could be in a couple of different camps. It could be because they were laid off, as I mentioned earlier, or it could be that they are just fed up at work. Many people, when they get to mid-career, you know, that old bottleneck happens, right? So only so many people are going to slip past that bottleneck up into the corporate suite. Um, so if you are not one of those people, you know at about mid-career that you're not, and you're doing repetitive work over and over, there's no place for you to go. So many people are bored at work. Many people are frustrated at work when they get to that mid-level because they're not able to express sort of the fullness of who they actually are. So I work with a lot of those people who just know they, they need something else. And then there are people who finally have made enough money in corporate America that they can leave and go do what they want to do. So you'll find that people are entering entrepreneurship for a variety of different reasons, but that whole freedom 
sort of undergirds all of it. Uh, let me ask you about something that goes beyond even sort of the soft skills and technological skills that, you know, one associates with the entrepreneur. So take the people you're talking about, people just launching or relaunching a brand or a business. What are the gut level sort of moral fiber elements they need to succeed? I'm thinking like grit and persistence. Is there a missing ingredient that can be acquired if you don't already have that ingredient? You know, I think one of the top ingredients, and this is just the first, that we all need to develop. It is a mindset, a different type of mindset. So a lot of the people that I work with, they are coming from a corporate or government environment where they've had a job. And so now to put them in a position where they are responsible for their own earnings, where they don't get paid every two weeks, they may get paid every two months. And so how do you manage your cash flow during that time? How do you encourage yourself to get up in the morning when no one says come to work? So it's a real shift in mindset that you are the owner, you're not the employee anymore, and that the responsibility for the success of this operation is really on your shoulders. When you're employed, it's on your company's shoulders. Well, you know, as you know, this show, The Thriving Artist Podcast, is for working artists. And working artists, a lot of them are over 45. In fact, the median age for working artists is 44. And among those that are older, especially the set that sort of went to art school or chose a different initial career path or maybe spent time in the gallery system before it started to shift and and are now needing to adapt, for that group, all of this uh, is very relevant. Uh, Do you think that some of these core ingredients that make a successful entrepreneur, that that we can find them in the artist as much as the guy who starts a coffee company or the person who goes out and becomes a consultant who, you know, was an engineer for for 40 years, et cetera. Is it it the same or or is it different? I think it's the same. I'll tell you why. I think that Whatever we decide to do or what we think we can and cannot do starts so early on when we're all basically the same. When you are a young person and you're encouraged to be creative and you're encouraged to explore and your parents are entrepreneurial and you're watching them make things, sell things, you're in that environment, you're picking up all of that. But if you're in an environment, which in the D.C. area, many people are, everybody in your family has a good government job. And so you've been raised that way, you know, to get that good government job. And sometimes in corporate America, get that good corporate position. And so now you don't know anything else. So I don't think it has anything to do with the artist's brain or anything. I really believe that it's socialization only in our country because you don't find it in other countries. You know, in the art world, the term emerging artist uh, can be very limiting because we're talking about people that are newly entering or re-entering their field. And so that sort of applies and dovetails with this concept of the emerging artist. But that, that term can be really limiting because it wrongly assumes that most under-recognized artists are younger, or at least it seems to portray it that way. And uh, this can actually make it harder for artists to qualify for certain grant categories, gallery relationships, and even venues to recognize developing artists, because you have these sort of programs, you know, 40 under 40, which is extremely common uh, for a lot of different organizations. And I wonder whether you think or, or how you think people 
overcome or can overcome preconceived ideas about where they're supposed to be in their career development? You know, I think with the gig economy and just just the shift in the whole economy, um, people are more responsible for what they put out into the universe than ever before. So if you're an emerging artist, for example, you have to put out into the world who you are. Oftentimes, people who are labeled, considered, who think they are emerging artists, they just want to lock themselves up in their studio and create. They don't want to expose it to potential criticism. Um, They don't want to expose their guest. So if you're emerging and you're not emerging, so to speak, outside of your studio, that's where I think the problem comes in. The only way to grow in anything, whether it's art or anything else, is to introduce it and give it to the world. And the world may not always say, ah, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. And that's okay because it gives us an opportunity to refine our craft. You know, there are are some good opportunities um, for artists that are older artists as well. Uh, New York City's or New York's Carter Burden Gallery only exhibits artists over 60, and they're doing quite well. Business is good for them. But um, I also have this concern, and I'm going to ask you sort of what to do about it, you know, not to bring up a political pain point. But uh, Joan Jeffrey, the founder of Research Center for Arts and Culture, in a recent study found 43% of artists experienced discrimination because of age. And an example of that is in focus groups, these artists reported that if a grant application asked their age, they felt certain that the application went, quote, right into the garbage. And uh, so there's a sense in which older artists often feel disempowered or, or that they're facing a monolith. Uh, in the form of discrimination. And I'm sure that some of that comes up with other types of entrepreneurs as well. So my question to you is, what is the most constructive thing that uh, working independent professionals in the gig economy who are older can do both internally to face that monolith, uh, if it is a monolith, and externally? What, What can they do about it? Well, internally, again, it's that mind shift, you know, not just, you know, the employee, employer, but also value, shifting the way you think about your value. But, you know, the the thing about art, I would think that if someone asks, you know, what is your age on an application for a grant? Is that really relevant? What happens if you don't fill that out? If your experience has been that you have all of this age discrimination against you, Does it disqualify you if you don't choose to say so? I would actually ask, what what is the purpose of that? Because your age shouldn't have anything to do with your skills and your abilities. So I would ask that grant maker, what's the purpose of this? And I, I would prefer not to answer that. I, I love that answer. You know, I was just talking about this with somebody else, some people that wanted some draconian information on a on an application for something and and some people that wanted some draconian information in a contract. And, um, you know, I made the analogy I used was, you know, the cable company asks for your social security number so that they can provide you internet. Um, And, you know, my question is, well, how is this going to be used? 
And they usually like to say, well, we just like to have it. And I'm like, yeah, I like to have a lot more money too. But, you know, so will you send you send me a check and I'll consider giving you my social security number. But, you know, we'd like to have it and we, we reserve the right to refuse you cable service. But I'm thinking, they're in business to make money. Are they really going to tell me I can't have my internet because I didn't tell them my social security number? They're going to work around it. Uh, or they're going to tell me how that information will be used. It's a, it's a reasonable question. Well, I so... never, ever <laughs> give anybody like that my social security number. I'll give them four digits. I won't give them my social security number. But Angela, don't you know that, you know, they're protecting your data with secure firewalls and the best in class. There's never a data breach. There's never any Absolutely. way to get. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> your information is safe. Trust them. They're almost the government. <laughs> well, well, maybe I must just be a rebel. I don't know. But, uh... <laughs> There you go. I think that's unnecessary. I really do. <laughs> I think you are a rebel, but that's okay. So am I. Uh, well, so I want to. I just want to say one more thing about this, and, and I don't know if it's a question or, or a comment, but I, I, I don't quite know how to form it into a question because it's a point of curiosity for me. And then I want to move on to uh, the second segment of the show, which is about sort of uh, transitions and uncertainty as one one does take on entrepreneurship, self-employment, and you know, sort of the changing economy for artists and entrepreneurs in general. Um, when I think of artists in particular, you know, versus um, uh, sometimes I'll hear an artist say, well, I, I'm not a contractor. I'm not a freelancer. I'm not in the gig economy. And I think, well, but you do commissions in the same way that a house painter will come and paint your house or uh, another person in a gig economy will build your website. You actually produce something. Not all artists do, do accept commissions, but certainly a lot of artists do. And I wonder um, then if... That doesn't mean that we all kind of have to take stock of what the gig economy applies, because if it's not being felt yet as deeply, you know, sort of the tremors of it in uh, the world of the individual working artists, certainly it, it, it shall be or it should be soon, wouldn't you think? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's hitting everything. I mean, it's just remarkable to me every week. I find out about a new site specifically for a niche. Like last week, I saw a site for scientists, gig worker scientists. And I thought, you know, it only makes sense because many scientists are contractors. This is the deal. The whole gig terminology, it, it just kind of puts a little gray shade on things. But none of this is new. We've had contractors and freelancers you know, since way back with Kelly girls starting out. So it's not new, but what is new is the technology that enables us to find opportunities quickly, cheaply, and affords the corporation to do the same thing. They can find their talent quickly, make no commitment to them, and they can usually pay a little um, less for that talent. So it's really the technology that enables the growth of the gig economy. Well, I would lean the other way even. I, I would su suggest that there's a, a cultural shift in perception that at one point, if you, if you rewind and go back 40 years, uh, when I was a kid, a person that didn't have what you called a steady job, by which you meant a nine to five W-2 employment, 
paycheck for a company with whom you might retire and get a gold pen, you somehow lacked a certain legitimacy. So I think a lot of people are still struggling with this issue. Uh, certainly, freelance has ob obtained a lot of legitimacy, and one can certainly wave around the freedom. You know, what are you doing in Aruba? Don't you have a job? It's like, yeah, I have a job. Uh, I work for myself, and I work for my laptop. So I'm in Aruba because I want to be in Aruba. Some of that freedom uh, has become a thing uh, that's envied by quite a lot of nine to fivers and for which they are now leaving their nine to five jobs for no other reason than, you know, I want, I want the freedom, but also to make more money. I'm an independent professional. I make a lot more money now than I did when I was in corporate life, you know, and somebody was deciding which health insurance I would buy, et cetera. I pay my own health insurance out of my pocket and come out ahead and it's good insurance. So I would argue that oftentimes there's more money involved. Um, there's a certain amount of dignity involved in it. And I think there's a little bit of a terminology uh, issue because, you know, uh, in my field, for instance, uh, I do consulting on educational programming and marketing uh, for, for company, you know, midsize and enterprise companies. And uh, if somebody were to call me a freelancer, I'd probably push back and protest a little bit and say, I'm not a freelancer. I'm, I'm an independent professional. Uh, and if they said, what's that? I'd say, well, it's like a contractor, except, you know, that I, I can bring a team who are also all contractors. Uh, and so there's some of that that, you know, is about terminology and semantics. Uh, and some of, some of it's about per perception. And so I, I think of artists as independent professionals in the same way that a lawyer is an has always been an independent professional unless he works for a big firm. Uh, and as you were saying, um, there's a lot in common with, you know, even you go back to the Kelly girl thing, except that back then nobody really glorified or envied the Kelly girl. And now it's a little bit different. <laughs> right. I mean, but it's, it's a chicken and egg thing, because think about it. Back when there was Kelly girls and there were a couple other manpower, the, you know, temporary agencies, that's what we called them then. That was a phone-based operation. You call every morning to find out if you have work where you go for work. But with the technology, what it's done, there's always been freelancers and contractors, and I used to call yourself an independent professional. I kind of like that. But that's always existed, right? But this whole kind of gig thing is we, the freelancers, the contractors, they worked on gigs, but we didn't call them gigs. We started calling them gigs when the technology was there to support us so that that person who you know who's in Aruba, they couldn't be there without the technology, right? Well, that's certainly true. The, the sort of digital nomad uh, has gotten created. Of course, a lot of things are local. You know, somebody that stops and opens a, a cupcake factory, you know, they're kind of tied. Yeah, they can't be on the road all the time necessarily. But, uh, but technology certainly upgraded our opportunities, even from the standpoint of, all right, so you run a, a you know, a, a boutique, uh, bespoke, uh, gourmet uh, cu cupcake factory. How do you take payments? How do you interact with clients? How do you recruit clients? Uh, and very often that's going to involve technology. So that, that point, that point's conceded. I, I almost want to take that temp thing and turn it on its ear and just start telling people I'm a permanent temp. <laughs> this is my, I remember the time I told my dad, he's like, when are you going to break down and get a job and have a career? And I, I said, dad, I don't want a job or a career ever, ever again. <laughs> and I, I remember that he, he, he thought about that for a minute and just burst out laughing. It's like, I need more freedom, more money. I don't want a job or a career. I want a life. And so I like this notion that kind of been equipped with the superpower of technology and the culture is now freeing us up and, 
certainly the guarantee of full-time employment is questionable now, given what we've seen. Very uh, much so. <laughs> the uncertainty is high. Well, that brings us right into our transition and uncertainty uh, segment of the show. And I have uh, a number of questions I want to ask you. So one way to get started in self-employment is don't quit your day job, you know, sort of um, moonlight on the side. Uh, but some people transition into self-employment in midlife as older adults precisely because they're losing a traditional nine-to-five job. Uh, either they're retiring or they're being phased out or they're facing discrimination or the company doesn't do what it used to do anymore or any number of other reasons. So how do they then go from no income to a sustainable income, assuming they haven't put back at least, you know, 20 grand in reserve funds? How do they get from zero to something that keeps them alive? Doesn't that take a long time? It does. It does. Um, there are some things that you can do. I, I kind of think of it like as in phases. I have this first phase. I call it quick pathways to cash. And it doesn't mean that you know, you can always get your cash the same day. But in a lot of instances, you can. Those are like, you know, your Ubers and your Postmates and, and, you know, delivery services, things like that, that you can sign up in that same day that you're accepting, you complete all the requirements, you can get paid. So if you're in a pinch for money, that's a quick pathway to cash. Then there's some other very quick pathways to cash. And when I tell people about these things, oftentimes, Daniel, they they frown up at me because they're saying, I don't want to do this. But all of these things, they may not focus on your skills and talents and gifts, but they are fast ways to make cash. So I give you a couple examples. <laughs> Window washing. You go to a very um, high class neighborhood that won't you know, throw you out for soliciting and have some flyers and put it in everyone's mailbox. And the first person who tells you, yes, you can wash my windows, you do it for free so that they will tell their neighbors because they trust their neighbors. They don't trust you. So they tell their neighbors and then their neighbors say, oh, well, give me the name of the guy. You know, they got 20, 30 windows or something. I, I actually know a gentleman who started off that way. And I gave him some advice, and now he doesn't wash windows anymore. He's the business development person, and he has all of these other people washing the windows. And he actually has a couple trucks now. So there are lots of things like that that we can do. I was thinking about artists. You know, if, if it's not something that you would just be, you know, philosophically opposed to, you just can't do this, murals in children's rooms. They were big at one point, and apparently, I don't have any small kids, but apparently they're coming back, that they are hiring artists to come in and do these Disney characters or whatever the characters in their children's room. I know someone who actually did that as a gig worker, and she paid her way through college and had spending money. So those are the kinds of fast pathways to cash that I tell people about. And then you have to systematically do your online and your offline work. All right. So we're talking about how you uh, get from 
you know, no income to sustainable income. And I was going to ask you the same question about how you get from unpredictable income to predictable income. And But I think your question kind of answers both of those questions. And I was thinking about it, you know, I got some advice early on that I really liked, uh, which is um, figure out what you want to do and then work in, around, and near it until you get to do it. And uh, so for a long time, for myself, I built websites and uh, ran a web design and SEO shop and so on. That wasn't what I was trying to do. But, you know, it certainly led to and sustained me as I built my marketing consulting company. And now I, I mostly provide strategic leadership and, you know, planning a brand story and, and so on. But if it hadn't been for those quick, steady infusions of cash, you know, a few websites a year, etc., uh, I don't know that I would have made it. I, I mean, I think I would have, but I, I certainly would have had to work a lot harder. And I, I'll give another example. I hired somebody the other day uh, to do some work for me, and I, I use one of those websites uh, like TaskRabbit to find people. It's not the only way I'll reach out and get somebody. I have five or six different kung fu methods of getting who I want for the right kind of job and type of engagement. Uh, but TaskRabbit works for this one, and uh, I got this person. I was so impressed with her. And what I wanted her to do is just a bunch of odd stuff. You know, go down and buy my painters, you know, six gallons of seltzer and bring that back to the house and then go and pull all the pegs off the pegboard in the tool shop and then, you know, uh, go take these things out of the boxes and put them on shelves. You know, just a, a variety of random things. But turns out she's a caterer. And while she's build, building her catering business, she's doing this other stuff. And in fact, she says, hey, I need to be fin winding down about 45 minutes. I have a catering gig, you know, down the street. I'm like, oh. Exactly. <laughs> and I'll call her back anytime. I'm already looking for how to hire her again this week. So I, I think this thing you're talking about, it can sound far-fetched to people. You know, I don't want to wash windows or whatever. But if you think about what's close to what you want to do, you and I were talking before the show about ways artists can generate quick infusions of capital that they can invest in their business by doing things that aren't necessarily considered fine art, but that a fine artist would be the most qualified person to do. And I find that an intriguing proposition. And exactly. And the thing about it is this idea of steady income, it's, it's a nice notion, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the only way to profit and to be comfortable. I had a consulting firm for 20 years. We had a steady flow of clients, but we never had steady income. We always had income where several months it was at this point and a couple months, it was down a little bit. And we've always had that. So that fluctuation is always there, but that's not necessarily uh, a detriment. And I think sometimes when people talk about a steady income, what they're saying is, I want to make the same amount of money every week, like I have a job. But if you're you know, into business for yourself, that may not be the case. It probably won't be the case. Yeah, you know, I I liken that to that system of dependency we often feel when we're in a W-2 job uh, to the, the health insurance. I hear people saying, I really want the health insurance where I know exactly how much I'm going to pay for a doctor's visit. And I'm like, all right, but that health insurance is 400% more expensive. Right. If you have the health insurance I have, you pay for certain things out of pocket and they cost what they cost, but your overall cost for the year is dramatically less. And it's just as good insurance. It covers you if you have a heart attack and all that stuff. Uh, and so it's the entrepreneur 
entrepreneur's health insurance. And in the same way, the entrepreneur doesn't, you know, have the ebbs and flows. Even if you're pretty, got pretty steady work, the size of your project shifts, whether you're a house painter, a marketing consultant, or, you know, you're building software, whatever it is, or you're an artist, the, the you know, how many gigs you get at once, it, you know, it all shifts. So I love the wisdom of getting, of having multiple income streams. Uh, somebody young asked me one time, what's the secret, you know, why have you been able to do this on your own for so many years? You tore up your resume, you never went back. Uh, and, you know, how, how did you do it? And I said, the secret is multiple income streams. Exactly. You don't, when you invest your money, you don't put it all on one stock or all in one mutual fund. Uh, so when you invest in yourself, do you really want your income to come from a single vulnerable source? And that's it. If that dries up or if the economy shifts for a month during a, a shutdown or a meltdown or, or a crash, do you, is that it then for you? You're just done? You know, you're, you're panhandling? So I love it. But I want to ask you something else. Let's take it down to the, you know, the realism again, which is, you know, given this uphill road we're talking about. So you're, you're working multiple income streams and you're, you're trying to achieve sustainability and predictability of income. How do you do that but also stay realistic about personal and family commitments uh, while you're also trying to stay on track with business growth? Personal and family commitments? I have a process where I do my planning at the beginning of the year. And it's, you know, it's firm, but yet in the same sense as pie in the sky. But I have a, a yearly calendar. I put all of my family commitments on that I know. If I know I'm taking a vacation, some, I mean, I'm at the point now where I can take, you know, two to three weeks straight. There was many years where I took long weekends, long weekends, long weekends. But now, you know, I can take a good chunk of time off. But I put all of that on my yearly calendar. And then when I set up my quarterly goals, I decide exactly what I need to meet those quarterly goals. So if I know I do online classes, I do in-person conferences, I do speaking engagements. And so I go after those pots of money where I need it so that the math works. And I put all of those objectives on my quarterly calendars. So say, for example, if I need $50,000 in a quarter, I can break that down into how many speaking engagements, how many, you know, some of that I already know because people already book from, you know, the end of last year going into 2019. So some of it you may know, you may bring some contracts across the, the new year and you start to break that down. So it's the same thing with gig work. When you get on these online platforms, you can get an idea. I mean, you may not start off with that idea, but after you've been working them a while, you sort of get an idea about what's realistic for you to make in a month with the amount of time you want to dedicate to it. And then you have to think through, you know, whatever family obligations you have and financial commitments you have, where how do you fill that gap? And then you go for those opportunities. And that's when it may mean that you're doing some fast pathways to cash because maybe the thing that you want to do is not as easily accessible or it may have a long sales cycle. You know, some things it takes you like 30, you know, 60 days to close. And then you just fill in opportunities. So I always tell people, have the possibilities all before you. Prep them up 
you know, get on a couple gig websites, sign up for some of these, you know, in-person gig things. You don't have to do them. Your choice. But if you're going toward a week when you're, you know, $100 short, then you go do it. You get to $150, you stop. Go back to the stuff that's important. That's the beauty of what's going on right now, that we are actually in control and we can patch our income together from a lot of different sources and really technology makes it a lot easier. You know, you're you're taking me exactly where I was hoping to go in the the third and final and even shorter segment of the show, which is about sort of planning for the future. Uh, so we, we sort of move from transition and uncertainty to what do you do about transitions and uncertainty, and you hit that hot button of planning. And I I think you're a devotee of planning, <laughs> you know, from what everything I could tell. And so first, I want to say that uh, just to use a, a reverse example of what you're saying, Airbnb. So if you rent out one of your spare rooms for Airbnb, after you've used the platform for a while, and you've been through a few seasons, you can kind of predict how much money you can and can't make if you if you rent it out 365 days a year, or you only rent it out in the spring. So so you achieve a, a level of predictability of the income from that. So I'm going to ask you a, a question about planning, a kind of a compound question. Talk to me about planning for the growth of your business and planning your income. How far in advance can we really effectively plan for the scope of our business? And, and really, what's the proper time frame or scope of, of an effective plan? Can you only really do it by the quarter or can you plan a whole year despite all that uncertainty and ebbs and flows or, or what? Yeah, I mean, I, I do longer planning than just a quarter. I, I really do my annual plan and I break it down into quarters. But, you know, life is what life is. You know, part of my journey is that I had this, you know, consulting company for over 20 years and we were doing just fine. But my son got sick. That was not in my plan. But because if you're an entrepreneur, you're a gig worker, you're an artist, because you know that every month your income may not look the same. You have to live beneath your income. And that's a hard transition for a lot of Americans because most of Americans are living at 90 to 110% of their income. So when there's a dip, you know, somebody, you know, loses a gig or, you know, somebody gets sick, you know, within a couple months, they're in big trouble. So life happens and we have to plan for that. So as entrepreneurs and artists and all of that, I know a lot of times people say, well, I may not even be making enough money to live. So how am I planning for all of these other things that could happen? And I tell people, it doesn't have to be a huge a commitment of money. Sometimes we have to look at, I, I do this exercise sometimes with people when they tell me that they don't have, they don't have money to plan for their retirement and for their future. I do this exercise with them where I look at their vices and we multiply those vices out over the course of a month. I remember one gentleman in particular who was a fan of very expensive coffees no names, multiply that over a month. And I said, take half of that and put it in an IRA. Only half. I didn't say you couldn't have any coffee. So most of the time, if we really take a look at our vices, don't give up everything 
but take a part of that and stash it away for the future so that you can, as you get older, have an additional little nest egg somewhere along with other things that you should be doing anyway. But we have to. Angela, I got to step away from the show because Seamless is knocking on the door with my $25 pastrami sandwich. Uh, it's just one of my vices. Uh, <laughs> I'm kidding. But that's it. I'm not kidding. It's actually true. When I look at my Seamless expenditures on my Amex at the end of the, the month, I'm like, why am I ordering out all these food? I could make a right. sandwich in five minutes. But no, that same $2 sandwich, I'm paying $15 plus tax, plus a delivery fee, plus tip. You know, what am I doing? to myself you know it's a $25 sandwich <laughs> so you know I totally get it well I want to ask you three more questions about this and you brought up retirement so I'm going to ask that one first so you know somebody asked me about it preparing for my retirement and I have what they call retirement funds and I always think that the the term is outdated I'm never going to retire. I think in part, this the last generation that was going to retire has retired. Most of us will work all of our lives. But on the other hand, I don't want to retire. I mean, I have the mind of a 25-year-old and the body of a 52-year-old. It's really disappointing. I try to run up three flights of stairs carrying three boxes, and I'm winded. And I'm like, how did that happen? I work out every day. Why am I winded? You know, And it's not cooperating with me. So at some point, I will slow down a little. But essentially, I love my life, love my work. I don't want to cash in and sit in a lawn chair, you know, in a, in a cabana somewhere in Florida. So my question is, is retirement really realistic uh, in the traditional sense in the gig economy? Is, is it somehow different uh, in the gig economy? And what do you do if you're passionate about your work, as many artists are, and just don't want to stop? Don't stop. Never stop if you don't want to stop. Uh, retirement, this is my definition of retirement, and you will not find this in the dictionary, doesn't exist. My definition of retirement is a period of time where I'm living, working as little as I want. I would probably always work up until I can't because I too am blessed to love what I do. And if you can really get that and figure out how to get paid for that, there probably is no such thing as the traditional retirement. But at some point, if I live long enough, the truth of the matter is I won't be able to work as much as I did. So I have got to have something available to me because we also know that there's a real probability that Social Security may not make it you know, the next 30 years. So we have a real possibility that we may have to think of some of our other options as we grow older. Well, I'm not even sure if so, whether if Social Security makes it, if the government will be open for business at that time anymore. <laughs> they might just be a big closed sign over the Social Security office. Might be, might <laughs> well, be. You know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. Yeah, I never even thought about it. I'm, I'm not relying on it. I, I do put money into that stuff, like your, your friend says, and I have cut out some things and, and, you know, not coffee. My coffee's not that expensive, but I've pulled it from various areas, areas and and put whatever the legal maximum is into some of those funds and so on and, and gone beyond that. Because yeah, there's a lot of, lot of benefit to it of watching it accumulate after a while. Well, I want to ask you the second question. So the second question is about marketing. So I'm going to ask you about retirement marketing and networking and marketing and networking left. So about marketing, you've said something to the effect of let your customers be your evangelists. 
And I want to know, how does one create a climate where people will evangelize for your work? I think a lot of artists are dying to know that. Oh, my gosh. That is so much fun. That is so much fun. So there's like a couple things that I would say to people. The first thing is to develop your thought leadership. So that simply means that you're speaking, you're writing, and you're showing. So for the artist, you're speaking. Maybe you're teaching. But you're showing people how intelligent and gifted you are. And they are sitting and, and, and they're waiting for your every word because you are. And if you present yourself that way, they believe you. So you're speaking, you're writing, maybe you're in a blog. You don't have to have your own. That's too much work. You're interviewed in various blogs or newsletters. You know, you're commenting on social media because you're the expert. If you're the expert, you have to act like an expert. You're showing. If you're an artist, again, you can't keep your art tucked away in a, in a cupboard somewhere. You've got to take every opportunity to show your artwork to everyone who wants to take a look at it. And I'm sure that artists there do the same as artists here will do. But when people are having large parties, I'm not talking about companies. I'm talking about individuals who are well-connected in the community. When they have large parties, many artists will rent their art for the evening. And there's price tags on them. So you go to the party and you see a stunning piece of art or a sculpture over in the corner. Say, oh my gosh, I love this. Oh, this is for sale. You just got to really, really just think outside of the box. And if you're doing all of that, you're talking, you're showing, you know, you're speaking. If you're doing all of that, and then there's something extra you give your customers. It doesn't have to be anything that costs you anything. It can be, you know, the email that you send that has like a special touch, you know, um, that reminds them that whatever it is they bought, it was one of a kind. It was the masterpiece, what you were thinking when you developed the artwork. Something that they can take away in and say, hey, I bought this art from Jeff. And look, he said that, you know, his sister and he were on the outs. That's, see that darkness in there? You know, they just want something to connect with you. They want something so they can tell their friends, I know the artist. So there's lots of little things like that we can do. But always try to give our customers a little bonus. It doesn't have to cost a dime, just a little free bonus. And you can ask them what would be something that they would appreciate. You might be surprised at how small of a bonus they may you know, love to have. So let me ask you one more question, and this one is about networking. I, I have a love-hate relationship with networking. I was a member of BNI for years and uh, have been part of other networking groups. And I have to say that the contacts I've made um, have enhanced my business and produced clients. And, you know, there's been a lot of good that's come out of it. I'm really happy. Of course, it's been, it was a huge investment in time. And there's equally an annoying facet of it. Uh, you know, you go to some networking event and you know, some guy's carrying around a stack of 100 business cards, handing them out. And, you know, the obligatory questions, what do you do? And what do you do? And, you know, while you're holding a beer and trying to, 
talk over the loud music and and it it feels a little cliche and awkward and weird and and uh and not to mention even the the one-upsmanship how many clients do you have i have this many clients you know from your from people that are in the same field and uh and so i i've never known whether to love it or hate it you know half annoying and half necessary what do you do my question does networking uh pay off is it worth worth it um and is there a way around uh, the pain to more of the good stuff that I think you and I both know comes out of it. You know, I um, learned many years ago as a young professional, I had an older mentor who said, you never go anywhere for your business without an objective. And he advised me to, if when you can, find out who's going to be attending and you identify one or two three at the most people that you want to meet at that event. Also identify what are you going to say to them when you meet them? Because a lot of times people say, oh, I really wanted to meet you. Why? (laughs) They can't tell you. Because I love your work. That's nice and that's flattering. But what is your business objective? Sometimes, you know, that can feel like stalking if you're not being very genuine about that business objective. And if you try to approach it like, I met you today, I'm going to sell you today. No, you're not. In most instances, you met me today, you're going to try to establish enough of an interest in me so that perhaps I will have a phone call with you or have a cup of coffee with you or begin a relationship with you. But I think going with a very smart business objective, and it could be something for artists, I would love for you to just take a look at some of my work and give me your opinion, your honest opinion. You're not selling. Even the other way around, I, I would like to look at some of your work. <laughs> right. That'll, that'll open up a door for you. <laughs> I mean, of course, you know, it's, it's always better when you're asking questions about the person you're talking to or you're offering them something that's a kudo to them. But so, you know, but it's, it's something like that. But you're in the back of your mind, as long as you understand that you don't want to be weird, you know, and just be annoying, that annoying person you were speaking about, but you understand that that's the beginning of a relationship. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, you know, a very close one in order for it to be an effective one. But, you know, a lot of times what I do for past clients is when I see things that come across my desk or the internet or something like that, I just forward it to them, thought about you and you know, I know what you're interested in. Hope it's helpful. I do that a lot. I do that to the point where I, part of my assistant's job, she has like all of these Google alerts for issues that I know particular clients are interested in because they've given me enough money that I want them to be a repeat customer. So she gets the alert on topics that they're interested in, and then we send them to them. Love to have a cup of coffee of you and find out what what else you guys are working on. You always give a lot more than you ask. The networking is effective. The networking can be a pain in the behind. <laughs> it can be. That was the premise of of B and I, which is a giver's gain, and 
and it's how I got into introduced to it. And it's been it's been seminal for me to to learn that. So I'm I'm really grateful for my years there. I um, if if I want to talk to somebody, you can develop a kung fu too. If I want to talk to somebody, I'll say, hey, I want because I want to learn more about you. And if I don't want to talk to them, I'll say because I want to tell you more about myself. <laughs> see see which way they which way they land. Right, right, right. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Angela's work, visit tkcincorporated.com. For more information on the Clark Hewlings Fund, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org. To sponsor our learning programs with your impactful gift of any size, visit clarkhewlingsfund.org slash donate. Thank you for listening, and thank you, Angela. It's been really great having you. Thank you so much.